And welcome to the Deep Dive Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Nick Espinoza, and we're going to be talking about all things cybersecurity, cyber warfare, and technology related. And I think we're one of the only ones out there that's doing that right now. If you'd like to be part of the radio show in any way, shape, or form, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can send us an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. We have an action-packed show as always. There's always a lot to cover, so stick around with us as we deep dive into a topic and we catch up on everything else. So without further ado... Let's begin. And we have a great show for you tonight. We're going to dive right into this and get straight to the news. But our deep dive is what you really want to stick around for. And that is entitled, What Cybersecurity Can Teach Us About Defending Democracy. Don't miss that. Thanks for joining. Let's start with the news. And in privacy news, we actually have to talk about the police tracking our cell phones because their ability to easily track us may soon be reformed. This is really good news. It's coming from the Associated Press, and here's what's going on. Civil rights lawyers and Democratic senators are pushing for legislation that would limit U.S. law enforcement agencies' ability to buy cell phone tracking tools to follow people's whereabouts, including back years in time and sometimes without a search warrant. I've talked about that extensively on this radio show and also on my daily podcasts and videos. Now, concerns about police use of a tool known as Fog Reveal raised an investigation by the Associated Press published uh, basically in September also surfaced in a Federal Trade Commission hearing about three, four weeks ago or so. Now, police agencies have been using the platform to search for hundreds of billions of records gathered from 250 million mobile devices and basically vacuum up people's geolocation data to assemble a so-called patterns of life, according to thousands of pages of records about the company. Now, Fog Reveal was developed by two former high-ranking Department of Homeland Security officials under under uh, former uh, President George W. Bush. Now, Fog Reveal relies on advertising identification numbers, which Fog officials say are culled from popular cell phone apps like Waze, Starbucks, and hundreds of others that target ads based on a person's movements and interests, according to police emails. This information was then sold to companies like Fog. Now, federal oversight of companies like Fog is an evolving legal landscape. Last month, the Federal Trade Commissioner, FTC, sued a data broker called Cochava, and I talked about them on this radio show, that like fog provided clients with advertising IDs that authorities can easily uh, can that authorities say can easily be used to find where a mobile device user lives which violates the rules that basically the FTC enforces now and a bill uh, was introduced by Senator Ron Wyden that is now before Congress seeking to regulate the way government agencies can obtain data from data brokers and other private companies at a time when privacy advocates worry that location tracking could be put to other novel uses, such as keeping tabs on people who seek abortions in states where it is now illegal. I talked about that as well on the radio show, and this is this is one of those huge things. Now, because of the secrecy surrounding fog, there are scant details about its use. Most law enforcement agencies won't discuss it, raising concerns among privacy advocates that it violates the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution, which protects against unreasonable search and seizure. And the default position should always be they need a warrant 
to look at any kind of cell phone data. Nobody should be able to go and say, oh, yeah, like, let's go look up Nick's cell phone number or, you know, tracking ID or something along those lines and say, oh, yeah, Nick is here or there or, you know, whatever else. It's the same with geofence warrants that they go to Google for, uh, you know, to pull up every IP address or geolocated phone in a specific area when somebody types in search history into Google. I mean, it's it's absolutely crazy. So hopefully, 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 we are basically um, going to see something like this pass and we're going to get more security and privacy from this because, quite frankly, we have survived for many civilizations for centuries without having this type of tracking technology. And I don't think we should be using it now. So there you go. We'll see what happens. But hopefully our privacy on our cell phones is going to be reformed to benefit us. And that is a good thing. And in stupid news. And yes... Oh, yes, my friends, we are doing stupid news because we have to discuss the NyQuil chicken challenge. And okay, here we go. This is like I said, this is beyond stupid, but we need to discuss this because this is the stupid that has been coming out of TikTok lately. Well, not lately, but pretty much since the beginning. But here we go. And this is actually really interesting. So here's what's up. Kay Bell of Engadget talks about the FD, how the FDA actually made this stupid challenge go viral. Meaning this really wasn't that big of a thing. The NyQuil chicken challenge, you probably heard of it on the news, but it didn't need to go viral. But the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, kind of made it. So here's what's up. If you're a news follower like I am, like I said, you've probably heard about this, but basically the the nutshell of the NyQuil chicken challenge is you cook chicken in NyQuil and that's it. Here's the thing. And I quote the article that I'm that I uh, basically am talking about here from Engadget. But it turns out NyQuil chicken was neither new nor particularly viral, and the FDA's bizarrely timed warning may have backfired, making the meme more popular than ever. End quote. Now here's the, here's the here's the the skinny on this. NyQuil chicken originated as a joke on 4chan, which is the dregs of of the internet, in 2017. The meme briefly resurfaced in January, where it got some traction on TikTok, and then it faded away again. Then, like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, the FDA inexplicably issued a press release warning about the dangers of cooking chicken in NyQuil in a notice entitled, and I quote, a recipe for danger, social media challenges involving medicines. The FDA referred to it as a recent trend, but they cited no recent examples, and it's unclear why they opted to push out a warning more than eight months after this meme had first appeared on TikTok. It's likely that the FDA's warning about NyQuil chicken that pushed this quote-unquote challenge to new levels of virality at least on TikTok. Now, TikTok has now confirmed that on September 14th, the day before the FDA notice, there were only five searches for NyQuil chicken in their app. But on September 21st, so obviously about five days after, that number skyrocketed by more than 1,400 times. Now, TikTok, which has recently taken steps to limit the spread of both dangerous challenges and quote-unquote alarmist warnings about hoaxes, is now blocking searches for NyQuil chicken. As both BuzzFeed and Gizmodo noted, there's little evidence that people are actually cooking chicken in NyQuil, much less actually ingesting it. That's a good thing because as the FDA makes very clear, doing so is not just really gross, but it is incredibly toxic. So the whole thing is yet another example of why we should all be more skeptical of the panic-inducing viral challenge. And we have seen these kinds of things in the past before where, oh, this challenge went viral. Facebook had a whole marketing campaign uh, blaming TikTok for a lot of these stupid challenges that are harming 
you know, kids and all that kind of stuff, a.k.a. come back to Facebook, everybody, and found out that a lot of those challenges actually had originated on Facebook and migrated to TikTok. You know, so so these are things that I think are never widespread. They just make the news. I remember seeing this on, I don't know, Stephen Colbert or something like that, like one of the clips I saw on YouTube of him making fun of the NyQuil chicken challenge, but it never really was a thing until the FDA made it a thing. So for like the five people that were actually looking for this from before, that is not really a problem, only in the sense that one, they shouldn't do that, but two, to have this shoot up 1,400 times more because of a statement by a federal agency saying, hey, you shouldn't do this, just shows the ridiculousness, the ridiculousness of this situation. So there you go. That is your NyQuil chicken news of the week. It never was really big until the FDA got their hooks into it, and here we are. Hopefully next time, they'll know better. And before we head over to the next segment, I wanted to let you know, and I've done this on a couple of shows, and I keep being reminded to do this, and I always forget. Uh, basically, if you didn't know, I put out content on a daily basis, not just here on the radio where you're listening to me, but actually I put it quite a lot of places, daily podcasts and videos on some of the latest trends, technology, cybersecurity, privacy, all these kinds of things I keep day to day. And some of the segments that I do for my news section or even my breaches of the week every Sunday gets translated into this show. But I do this as essentially a labor of love. You know, I don't have any kind of monetization anywhere. I just do it to keep people informed and to keep everybody interested. But you can find me uh, basically on Twitter or Facebook at slash Nick AESP or on LinkedIn and YouTube at slash Nick Espinoza. And please, Follow me. I'd love to hear. I'd love to basically get a shout out from you and, and you know, send me a message or whatever it is. Uh, but I do content daily and I hope you guys enjoy it. And so that is my quick blurb. And in Ukraine news, and this is really interesting because Russia is going to start seeing civilian satellites as military targets. Maybe. Now, this is coming from Ars Technica, but other sources as well. A Russian diplomat said civilian satellites could be legitimate military targets in a statement that seemed to refer to Starlink providing broadband access in Ukraine. Civilian satellites, quote, may become a legitimate target for retaliation, end quote, the Russian official said in a statement to the United Nations open-ended working group on reducing space threats. So literally, they're talking about increasing space threats when we're supposed to be talking about reducing them. Now, this quote is from an unofficial English translation of this from a statement on September 12th by Konstantin Voronsonov. He is the head of Rush, the Russian delegation to the United Nations Office for Disarmament Affairs Working Group. The translation is provided with other country statements from the session on that meeting website. So I think this is obviously a huge thing. As we know, SpaceX, uh, basically their, their division, Starlink, sent satellite terminals to Ukraine after Russia's invasion disrupted many of the broadband networks. Uh, United States was providing funding for that effort. And basically the satellite internet has been useful for Ukraine's military operations, not to mention uh, you know personnel on the ground and all of that. And so this is a huge escalation because we have traditionally not fought wars in space. We're not shooting missiles into space. And if Russia's basically starts that, this is going to start a new escalating conflict that doesn't just involve Ukraine. It's going to involve every nation that has interests and capability to get everything from satellites to shuttles and beyond in space. Remember, we have a space station that we share with the Russians. So I'm going to keep an eye on this. I'm going to let you know where this goes. But this is deeply concerning because this goes above and beyond conventional and cyber warfare. 
I'll, uh, so like I said, I'll keep you up to date. But that is your, your Ukrainian news of the week. And you're listening to Nick Espinosa, the Deep Dive Radio Show, a syndicated radio show here in podcast form on SoundCloud. And make sure to check your local listings so you can catch it on a radio station near you. And now for breaches of the week. And if you have a data breach to report that's local to you or the major news might have missed it, Please, by all means, send it to me, and I'm glad to give you a shout-out and include it in the radio show and possibly a daily video. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter and uh, Facebook at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can uh, email questions at securityfanatics.com. Again, that's questions at securityfanatics.com. And I'm more than happy to include your data breach and give you a shout-out on the air. With that, let's begin. And the last couple of weeks, which is actually three weeks because of how October laid out my my schedule, actually, I had a three-week gap between my shows. It's usually a two-week gap. The last few weeks have been absolutely insane for data breaches, and I've had a ton of help from a lot of different people that sent me a whole bunch of this information. And so... Thank you very much, Chris Fallon, Jay Dance, Barrett Peterson, Jacqueline Wolf, Matt Knowles, Sanders Slidnerink, Alexander Howe, Charlie Northrup, and Aaron Lax. Thank you so very much for all of these. And let's dive right in because we have an absolute ton of ground to cover on Breaches of the Week. The first one we're going to be talking about is Revolut. Now, this is a financial technology company. An unauthorized party had access, quote, for a short period of time, end quote, to the details on only 0.16% of their customers, according to them. Now, according to their breach disclosure, basically um, to the state inspectorate of Lithuania, where Revolut actually has a banking license, 50,150 customers have been impacted, meaning if that is 0.16%, they have a ton of customers everywhere. Now, based on the information from Revolut, the agency said that the number of affected customers in the economic area, the European economic area, is 20,687, and just 379 Lithuanian citizens are potentially impacted. And we are talking about email addresses, full names, postal addresses, phone numbers, limited payment card data, and account data as well. So if you are one of the zillion people that use Revolut around the world, heads up to you. Next up, let's talk about Starbucks. Yes, the giant in coffee. Apparently, their Singapore division has admitted that they suffered a data breach that impacted 219,000 of their customers. Now, Starbucks Singapore sent out letters to notify those customers, and what was stolen was name, gender, date of birth, mobile number, email address, and residential address. What I'd be interested to know is if the same system that Singapore uses is the same system that we use here in the United States and other places around the world, maybe just tailored to uh, you know the language in Singapore. And if that ca- if that's the case, and if there's a vulnerability in Singapore, maybe there's a vulnerability here in the United States as well. No idea, but obviously I'll keep you informed. Formed. Moving on, let's talk about IHG. This is the massive hotels group, intercontinental hotels group. Basically, the attackers have told the BBC that they carried out this cyber attack against the Holiday Inn owner for fun. Now, describing themselves as a couple from Vietnam, they say they first tried a ransomware attack, then deleted large amounts of data when they were foiled. 
basically they accessed the uh, company's databases thanks to an easily found and weak password, which was QWERTY1234. Uh, if you look at the top row of letters on your keyboard, you will see they spell QWERTY. Very easy to hack. Now, an expert uh, says that the case highlights the vindictive side of criminal hackers. IHG is based out of the UK. They operate 6,000 hotels around the world, including Holiday Inn, Crown Plaza, Regent, and a whole bunch of other brands. So this is obviously a huge black eye for one of the largest hotel groups in the world. Moving on, speaking of large things, let's talk about American Airlines, the largest carrier in the United States, from what I understand. They say their cybersecurity response team found out about a recent disclosed data breach from the targets of a phishing campaign that was using an employee's hacked Microsoft 365 account. As the airline said in its filings with the office of the New Hampshire Attorney General, after receiving these phishing reports, America's American Airlines Computer Incident Response Team discovered unauthorized activity in the company's Office 365 environment. An investigation also revealed that the attacker accessed multiple employees' accounts, also compromised via phishing, and they used them to send more phishing emails to targets that American has not yet disclosed. Now, as American disclosed in the notification, uh, personal information exposed may have included employees and customers, names, dates of birth, mailing addresses, phone numbers, email addresses, driver's license numbers, passport numbers, or certain medical information. Only 17 or over, I should say, 1,700 customers and employees affected. They revealed this two months after it was discovered, which is awfully late. And so there you go. If you're one of those 1,700 employee, uh, employees or customers, that's a huge problem. That said, it's out of millions, so it doesn't seem like this went as far uh, or as worse as it could have been. Moving on, let's talk about Kiwi Farms. If you don't know who they are, they are probably one of the worst of the worst websites on the internet. Just horrific. This is the internet forum best known for organizing harassment campaigns against trans and non-binary people that has led to at least one suicide uh, of a said trans or non-binary person. And they said that their site experienced a data breach that allowed attackers to access the administrative account and possibly the accounts of all other users. Now on that site, the creator of Kiwi Farms, Joshua Moon, wrote, quote, the forum was hacked. You should assume the following. Assume your password for Kiwi Farms has been stolen. Assume your email has been leaked. Assume any IP you've used on your Kiwi Farms account in the last month has been leaked. Now, here's hoping the site never comes back again. World's smallest violin for Kiwi Farms. Horrible, horrible site. Moving on. Let's talk about U-Haul. That is the company that you see their trucks everywhere because you can rent them. They suffered a data breach due to an unauthorized person having access to an unspecified number of rental contracts. Um, and basically, U-Haul's parent company had to basically uh, reveal this two weeks ago. Americo is their parent company. Now, it is not known uh, how many customers have been affected, but apparently their payment card information is safe. The person had access only to customers' names, driver's license numbers, and the information, obviously, on the driver's license, such as address, dates of birth, etc., or state ID numbers. Quote, we detected a compromise of two unique passwords that were used to access a customer contract in, in uh, the customer contract search tool that allows access to rental contracts for U-Haul customers. So there you go. If you've rented a U-Haul recently, heads up to you. 
Moving on, let's talk about Grand Theft Auto 6 because over 90 videos of GTA 6 gameplay footage and screenshots made their way online a couple of weekends ago, primarily via the GTA forums. Now, the footage shown in those leaks lined up with previous reports surrounding Rockstar's next game, which is said to feature a Bonnie and Clyde-inspired playable duo to be set in Vice City, which I believe is one of the cities in Grand Theft Auto. I swear I have not played this game in probably like 20 years, so obviously it was like 1.0 or whatever that was back then now with over an hour of developer gameplay footage spread across 90 different videos the gta 6 leak is one of the biggest leaks in the history of the video game industry on september 18th a compressed zip file containing all of the material was first posted to gta forums by a user who called himself or themselves teapot tuber hacker there you go teapot uber hacker there it is who claimed that they were responsible for the hack and that they could leak more data, including source codes and assets. The next day, Rockstar Games, maker of GTA 6, did verify that the GTA 6 leak was real and expressed its extreme disappointment with the situation, but stated that development would continue unaffected. Some of the most uh, significant information to come out of the leak included the confirmation of male and female protagonists, as well as a return to the setting of Vice City. I guess they abandoned it at some point. The FBI is currently investigating. So there you go. If you're a Grand Theft Auto fan, heads up to you. <coughs> Excuse me. Moving on. Let's talk about Bosnia and Herzegovina, the con the country, because prosecutors in that country are investigating a wide-ranging cyber attack that has crippled the operations of the country's parliament for nearly two weeks. The website for the country's parliament has been down, and local news outlet Nezvizin, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, spoke with several lawmakers who said they were told to not even turn on their computers, barring them from access to their email accounts and official documents. That's all I've got so far on Bosnia and Herzegovina, but they are not the first country to come under major cyber attack. We've seen a couple South American countries uh, basically earlier this year. Also, um, Montenegro had their government infrastructure hit, so targeting full-blown countries is apparently a thing, and it seems to be increasing in popularity, so we'll see where that goes. I'll obviously keep you updated here. Moving on, let's talk about the Family Health Centers in Texas. They operate a network of four primary care clinics in Amarillo and Canyon, Texas, and they disclosed a healthcare data breach to HHS. This impacted 233,948 individuals in total. Now, Family Health Centers discovered suspicious network activity on July 26 and stopped the incident the same day, according to them. Potentially, what we're talking about are names, mailing addresses, social security numbers, dates of birth, and protected health information. So if you use Family Health Centers out of Texas... Heads up to you. Moving on, let's talk about the physician's business office. They filed an official notice of data breach with various state government entities after an unauthorized party gained access to their network. Now, according to physician's business office, the breach resulted in names, address, dates of birth, social security numbers, driver's license numbers, protected health information, and health insurance account information being compromised. They sent out data breach letters to 196,573 people informing of, of that basically informing them of this, and that was absolutely and I will just say this on a complete aside before we continue on with the next one. There were an absolute ton of healthcare data breaches in the month of September. As I'm sitting here talking to you on October 3rd or whenever you're listening to me. So this is 
was just an absolute just week after week of just healthcare data breaches because we're not done with this either because the next one up is Humana and Choice Health. Now, Humana disclosed a third-party data breach basically to Maine's Attorney General that impacted 22,767 uh, individuals, and this was because of Choice Health, the entity that was selling Medicare products on behalf of Humana, obviously a third party, they got hit, Humana has to declare, as well as Anthem Main Health also had to declare thanks to Choice Health. So we are talking about another huge supply chain breach in uh, basically healthcare, but we are not done because we have another large healthcare supply chain breach, and that would be mail service vendor K. Smith. In June, K. Smith learned that an unauthorized individual had gained access to information on their systems, and we are talking about the unauthorized access of patient information, and by virtue of that, Seattle Children's had to basically declare a breach for 6,750 patients. We're talking names, addresses, provider names, medical record numbers, visits, lab info, guarantee numbers, uh, and names of insurance carriers. Also, Danville, Pennsylvania-based Geisinger also had to uh, announce as well for 2,857 patients. And so here we are. That is absolutely crazy. You probably don't even know if your medical service is using K. Smith, but you might be getting a letter sooner than later because apparently they are a player in this industry. Moving on. Let's talk about defense giant Elbit, uh, specifically Elbit Systems of America, which is a subsidiary of the Israeli defense giant Elbit, has confirmed suffering a data breach a few months after a ransomware gang claimed to have hit the company. Now, in a notification to Maine's attorney general office, the company said the breach occurred on June 8th, and it was discovered the same day. Only 369 people are affected, obviously employees. What we're talking about for those employees are names, address, social security number, date of birth, direct deposit information and ethnicity. So heads up to you if you work for Elbit Systems of America. Moving on, let's talk about the law firm Reed and Reige because on March 21st, uh, apparently they had been infected with malware. That's pretty much all I know at this time, but this is another supply chain breach for hospitals because Stafford Springs, Connecticut-based Johnson Memorial Hospital had to declare as a result of this. So we will see if there's more information coming out of this, but this was a recent one that I did in the last couple of days. My last regular Breaches of the Week podcast and video, I talked about that one. Moving on, let's talk about Samsung. Yes, Samsung, the electronics giant. Two users have filed a class action lawsuit against Samsung over two data breaches that the company suffered this year in 2022. The 43-page complaint filed with the Federal District Court for the Northern District of California claims that Samsung unnecessarily collected users data and then stored and sold it without proper security protections which led to back which led to two back-to-back data breaches and so we're going to see where this goes but if you are a samsung customer or have a samsung account you may eventually be entitled to compensation moving on let's talk about the cpa or calgary parking authority earlier this week cpa interim general manager chris blaschuk confirmed that a vulnerability on one of their servers exposed the information of 145,895 customers despite an earlier statement that said only 12 
customers had their data compromised. Now, last year, it was found that CPA had left a logging server without a password, which allowed pretty much anybody um, to, to access this information if you knew how to get to it. Now, the security research firm Anurag Sen was the one that first detected this vulnerability. They reached out to TechCrunch to confirmed all of this. And so we are talking about the exposure of names, birth dates, phone numbers, email addresses, postal addresses, and even parking tickets or offenses were exposed. The parking details also gave out customer license plate information and vehicle descriptions. Most worrying is that there were also partial payment card numbers and expiration dates there. So if you're in Calgary or have been in Calgary and you've used the Calgary Parking Authority for all your Calgary parking needs, heads up to you. Not good. Moving on, let's talk about fast company. Uh, This is a very interesting, I believe they're part of Forbes or Inc. or something like that. Um, They took their websites offline after they were hacked to display uh, basically stories and push out Apple News notifications containing both obscene and racist comments. Apple News obviously got involved and had to shut them down, all these kinds of things. But Fast Company came out and said, no, we have you know not turned into Nazis. We, we actually got hit and all of that. So Fast Company is cleaning it up. But if you saw a Fast Company notification in Apple News that was obscene or racist, understand it wasn't Fast Company. They were hacked. And finally, and we have a few different finalies for you today, because like I said, this has just been an absolutely bonkers three weeks. We have to talk about Uber, the ride sharing company. Now, Uber discovered that its computer neck computer network, excuse me, had been breached about two weeks ago, um, about two, three weeks ago or so, leading the company to take several of its internal communications and engineering systems offline as it investigated the extent of this attack. Now, the breach appears to have compromised many of Uber's internal systems, and a person claiming responsibility for the hack sent out images of email, cloud storage, and code repositories to cybersecurity researchers and the New York Times. Quote, they pretty much have full access to Uber, end quote. That's according to Sam Curry, uh, a security manager at Yuga Labs, who basically corresponded with the person who claimed responsibility for this breach. Quote, this this is a total compromise from what it looks like. Now, to continue, an Uber spokesman said that the company was investigating the breach and contacting law enforcement officials. Uber employees were instructed not to use a company's internal messaging service, Slack, and found that other internal systems were inaccessible, according to employees who were not authorized to speak publicly, but obviously talking to various news outlets. Now, shortly after the Slack system was taken offline that Thursday afternoon, Uber employees received a message that read, Quote, I announce I am a hacker and Uber has suffered a data breach, end quote. The message went on to list several internal databases that the attacker claimed that they had compromised. The attacker compromised a worker's Slack account and used it to send the message, and that is according to the spokesperson for Uber. Now, it appeared that the uh, attacker was later able to gain access to other internal systems, posting an illicit photo on an internal, uh, internal information page for employees. Now, the person who claimed responsibility for the attack told the New York Times that he had sent a text message to an Uber worker claiming to be a corporate information technology person. The worker was persuaded to hand over a password that allowed the attacker um, to gain access to Uber systems, and that is obviously known as social engineering. Now, the attacker 
who provided screenshots of basically the internal Uber systems to demonstrate his access, said that he was 18 years old and he had been working on his cybersecurity skills for several years. He said he had broken into Uber systems because the company had weak security. In the Slack message that announced the breach, the person also said Uber drivers should receive higher pay. Now, the person appeared to have access to Uber's source code, email, and other internal systems. And that's according to Mr. Curry, who I mentioned before. Quote, it seems like maybe there's this kid who got into Uber and doesn't know what to do with it and is having the time of his life, end quote. Now, in an internal email that was seen by the New York Times, an Uber executive told employees that the hack was under investigation. Quote, we don't have an estimate right now as to when full access to tools will be restored, so thank you for bearing with us. That is according to uh, Latha Maripuri, that is Uber's chief information security officer. Now, This was not the first time that an attacker basically has stolen data from Uber. If you recall, I've talked about this extensively on the air and also on my daily podcasts and videos. In 2016, basically, attackers stole information from 57 million driver and writer accounts and then approached Uber and demanded $100,000 to delete their copy of the data. Uber arranged the payment but kept the breach secret for more than a year. I I did articles on that. I talked about that extensively. It's also why I have never paid for an Uber since. And there you go. So with that, let's keep going because we have some other just crazy, crazy news. The other one is Morgan Stanley. This is obviously the financial giant here in the United States because the Security and Exchange Commission on September 20th announced charges against Morgan Stanley Smith Barney LLC or MSSB stemming from the firm's extensive failures over a five-year period to protect the personal identifiable information, or PII, of 15 million of their customers. Now, Morgan Stanley has agreed to pay $35 million in penalties to basically to settle the SEC charges. The SEC's order found that as far back as 2015, MSSB had failed to properly dispose of devices containing customers' PII. On multiple occasions, Morgan Stanley hired a moving and storage company with no experience or expertise in data destruction services to decommission thousands of hard drives and servers containing PII on millions of its customers. Moreover, according to the SEC, uh, over the years, Morgan Stanley has failed to properly monitor the moving company's work. The staff's investigation found that the moving company sold to a third party thousands of former Morgan Stanley devices, including servers and hard drives, some of which contained customers' personal identifiable information, which were eventually resold at internet auction sites without removal of that. Meaning if you are a Morgan Stanley customer Your information might have been on a server that was basically given to a third party. They were supposed to destroy it and handle it properly. They turned around and resold it, ended up on an auction site, and then God knows who bought that data and had a whole bunch of basically financial and personally identifiable information on Morgan Stanley customers. That is absolutely nuts. Absolutely nuts. Now, while Morgan Stanley recovered some of those devices, basically they were literally not finding any of anything else. They did not recover the vast majority of this. They also found that the devices that they recovered were uh, basically recovered. Excuse me, were not encrypted. Meaning, if they were encrypted, we would not be having this conversation. They would not be facing fines. That is not the case. Obviously, that's horrible. So, if you're using Morgan Stanley. 
you got to check in with them because you might be one of the 15 million customers that now basically has a data breach. They got fined 35 million. That is absolutely ridiculous. And finally, finally, we need to talk about Australia's second largest teleco, Optus. And this is actually kind of important. I don't care if you're in Australia or not. Uh, and if you are in Australia, I'm really sorry about this one because this is a huge one. But I think it's also a lesson to the rest of the world on just how damaging these things can be and how governments can react. So here's what's going on with Optus. Now, Optus said in a press release about a week or two ago or so that an unspecified number of customer names, dates of birth, phone numbers, email addresses, and addresses and identity documents Document numbers such as driver's license or passport numbers were taken in a data breach. Now, they basically did not say when it took place, but they believe the incident was over. The Australian Signals Directorate, which is their equivalent of the U.S.'s NSA or National Security Agency, was notified about this. Now, here's where this gets interesting, though, because a LinkedIn colleague of mine, Andy Jenkinson, he's the group CEO of the CyberSec Innovation Partners, wrote this regarding Optus, and I quote, Major Optus customer data breach blamed on human error. Optimus Chief Executive Kelly Bayer Rosenmarin apologized for the digital intrusion as it was declared uh, the attack could date back as far as 2017. We had researched Optimus's internet-facing security in February of 2021. We informed them directly at that time of exposed domains and subdomains. Their DNS had been insecure, including their DNS zone, since at least for December 2020 and more likely for years prior to this date. Optus has been exploited due to basic security errors. An investigation has commenced and no doubt will not disclose the extent of the lack of control, management, and governance of basic internet assets, including websites, servers, and DNS. Whilst the 9.8 million records exfiltrated sparked fury, the CEO of Optus was close to tears with interviewed by Australian television. This and hundreds of other breaches are caused by human error and access enabled by by basic internet security. When we point out when we point these errors out and we do so frequently, it is often dismissed as unimportant. I bet the people at Optus wish they had listened over 18 months ago. Now, if that's true, if what he wrote was true and I have no reason to doubt Andy here, that is a serious lapse in security. Andy's experience, for the record, is also mine. I have been basically on that side where I have discovered vulnerabilities. I've stumbled across them or we are looking for vulnerabilities in our day job. We alert the company to say, hey, you know, just FYI, you know, we're security researchers or in the cybersecurity field. We found this vulnerability. Just a friendly heads up. And we either don't hear back, um, you know, or, you know, we get thank you. And then, you know, we check it a month later and it's it's still a problem. These are huge issues. Now, the one thing that I, I, I mentioned before I started this little segment on it was the Australian government, because the Australian government basically announced that they're going to be looking to pass legislation and new data security laws, uh, basically for private companies in Australia by the end of the year. That is a great reaction to this because these things are needed. We need to continuously be innovating, continuously strengthening and requiring cybersecurity, especially of large companies where we are holding all of this. We're talking about almost 10 million records. That is a significant number in and of itself, but the population of Australia is significantly smaller than, let's say, here in the United States or China or other places. And so that is an enormous percentage of their population, obviously a huge thing. So there you go. Those were your breaches of the week. It was absolutely nuts, like I said, for the last three weeks. But you can't say you weren't told. 
and let's move on. And you're listening to Nick Espinosa, the Deep Dive Radio Show, a syndicated radio show here in podcast form on SoundCloud. And make sure to check your local listings so you can catch it on a radio station near you. And now for the Deep Dive segment where we take a closer and deeper look at a cybersecurity, cyber warfare, or technology issue around us. And if you have any suggestions for a Deep Dive segment or something you'd like me to dive into, you can once again find me on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can send an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. That's questions at securityfanatics.com. I am more than happy to take a look at it. And uh, if it meets our standards, we are more than happy to do a deep dive on it. So let's begin. And I know I mentioned a lot that my deep dive segments I think are really important, but honestly, I really do think this one is. And Essentially, this is coming from an article that I wrote uh, for Smirconish's CNN, probably going to turn into a talk in some way, shape, or form, and it was entitled, What Cybersecurity Can Teach Us About Defending Democracy. Now, I think this is just such an unbelievably important situation. We see what happens when trust breaks down in society politically, and I am not, for the record, getting political here. This is not a political argument. I am simply saying we basically have democracy under threat Here's how we can basically fix this or how here's how we can at least uh, prevent a, a removal of our democratic rights. And so with that, let's dive in, because I think this is just both timely and needed, especially since we're about a month or so before the next midterm election here in the United States in 2022. And so with that, let's get going, because no government, for the record, has stood the test of time in a single form. Democracy in ancient Greece crumbled. Rome's Republic burned. Monarchs and emperors alike have seen rises and collapses for agents. Now, whether it's the sun setting on the British Empire or American democratic uh, safeguards being torn down, being on guard to defend and maintain a society whose systems of values have made it rather unique throughout history is a charge that all who recognize its importance and value need to embrace as their own. In that vein, defending a nation that stands for freedom of expression can be difficult. The loudest voices can sometimes control the national megaphones, even when they decry said values or even wish to curtail our liberties under the guise of saving them. And we see that quite a bit. There's an old saying that says, look to what the dictator says about his enemies to see what he will do. Now, in the last chapter of his book, Ship of Fools, Fox News's biggest pundit, Tucker Carlson, whom I'm assuming you all know in some way, shape, or form. Again, I don't care if you love or hate the guy, but he wrote this in the last chapter of his book, and I quote, There are two ways to end this cycle. The quickest is to suspend democracy. There are justifications for this. If your voters can't reach reasonable conclusions, you can't let them vote. You don't give suffrage to irrational populations for the same reason you wouldn't give firearms to toddlers. They're not ready for the responsibility, end quote. Now, his other option was to take care of the people of the nation. However, his views on what care actually are and what they stand for are a far more ambiguous and debatable than the clarity of his first option. With millions of viewers tuning into his nightly and now daily shows, there is widespread support among his followers for the words in his best-selling book. Now, the suspension of what the core of a society is means to inevitably alter it for good. As a recent example of that, 
the military in Myanmar decided they didn't like the results of that country's democratic vote, and they chose to take over the nation via a coup to quote-unquote protect it until another election could be had with, I'm assuming, ideally more favorable results for them, no doubt. Now, to date, their military hasn't left power, and it's not looking like they're going to be handing over the reins of the government to civilians anytime soon. If a military can suspend democracy temporarily, it can just suspend it permanently. The faith that the citizens had in their democratic process has been shaken to the core, and time will tell if trust can ever be rebuilt in that country. Thus, defending ourselves against the suspension of rights or worse is something that needs to be understood by the general population so we can start taking action as needed. And for that, honestly, there's no better place to look than how we approach cybersecurity. A holistic cyber defense strategy teaches us many critical lessons for protecting society. And with that in mind, here are some of the core lessons cybersecurity can teach us so we can hopefully avoid the end of democracy as we know it. Lesson number one, without an understanding of risk, we cannot properly defend society. Now, I like to say that cybersecurity is simply the quantification of risk and then the implementation of risk mitigation. If an organization cannot understand the financial and reputational damage caused by something like a hacking event in hard and soft dollars, then how do they know that their current defenses are proper and capable of withstanding the assault? Maybe production can be down for six hours before it's so economically unviable for the organization. Or maybe marketing can be down for a week and nobody cares. If this type of quantification doesn't occur, then learning the hard way is usually the name of the game. And society, for the record, is no different. How do we quantify the risk for a country the size of the United States? The same way we look at everything. We identify the threats, quantify the damage they can do, and then put a plan of action into place to mitigate them. This is why the riot on January 6th of 2021 was horrific to the vast majority of us in the country, the illusion of security and a thoroughly peaceful political process for the nation was shattered. The government had not anticipated the mob that day, despite all of the previous warnings online, and the defenses were taught, caught totally off guard and understaffed. There's no doubt about that. Now, as Congress and the Department of Justice continue to sort through those events and actions preceding that day, it's important to fully identify the warning signs and risks associated with those that were involved to try and fully mitigate another potential future attack. That is such an unbelievably important lesson. But the next lesson we have is simply this. Proactive vigilance is absolutely required. Now, if you have ever experienced data corruption in your life, then you understand that corruption continues to get worse until it's identified and fixed. It never stays still. In the age of the hacker... We in cybersecurity have developed tools and platforms that help actively monitor for anomalies and events so we can get ahead of developing attacks, spreading infections, and more. Those organizations that fail to implement proactive strategies for this level of vigilance are the ones that make the news. Think SolarWinds, Colonial Pipeline, Marriott, and on and on and on. They're all unfortunate examples of what I'm talking about in their own way. 
vigilance for threats that undermine society as a whole must be addressed before they spread like cancerous corruption. When the leadership of a government does not adhere to the guiding principles of the country, then the judicial action under the framework of the society is warranted. South Korea recently had tried and convicted their former president under that premise. The United States has seen its share of congressional members tried and convicted in the past for various crimes. No one Not even a president can be above the law. Historians have debated that when President Ford pardoned President Nixon after his resignation, it set a precedent that the president is above the scrutiny of the law. In a legal framework like the United States, that should never be the case. Everybody gets their day in court, and a president or former president should not receive exemptions. This vigilance is required for all branches of government. Any civil servant that is caught attempting to undermine the Constitution of the United States needs to be investigated and removed from service with any clearances revoked if they are found guilty in a court of law. I don't care if it's the dog catcher or the president, this has to be applied universally. Finally, the assumption that institutional safeguards are both fully in place and will prevent corruption is a false sense of security. This is also why good cyber defense strategies are continuously checked and tested. Recently, uh, Julie Ioff of uh, the news service Puck said, and I quote, Institutions are just buildings with people in them, and it very much depends what kind of people you shove into those buildings, end quote. Now, what she means is that the character and ethics of those people are what hold the line against coups and takeovers. France recently saw this in action as two opposing political parties formed a coalition to keep a more extreme party from assuming power. That was Marine Le Pen's party. Though these parties agreed basically on nothing, both understood that all is lost when extremists can permanently remove them and change the nation for good. We're about to see what happens in Italy now that they've elected that leader. So we'll check on there. The next lesson that we really have to learn and internalize and start acting on is this one. Education is the difference between life and death. Now, I like to tell my clients that I can build them a Ferrari's worth of a cyber defense strategy, but if I'm turning the keys over to said Ferrari... If, rather, if I'm turning the keys to the Ferrari over to a chimpanzee, then how far are we going to get? We have to learn how to drive. Knowledge of how your government operates is no different. I don't care where you live. You have to truly understand how your government functions, the concepts of the framework that make it work. This is so unbelievably important. Recent polling of the American public shows that a shocking number of Americans are failing civics in general. An unhealthy percentage cannot name all three branches of government, which means they cannot understand concepts like separation of power or the checks and balances methodology that ensures that no one branch can assume too much power. It is this lack of knowledge that then leads to another unhealthy percentage of Americans that think the president, meaning the leader of the executive branch, should be able to remove a sitting judge who is a, who is a member of the judicial branch that they disagree with. They believe the president should be able to remove a judge if the judge disagrees. That is acceptable in autocratic and authoritarian countries where judges are used to confirm the will of the leader only, but not in a healthy democracy. And there's like a third of us that believe that. It's crazy. The artist Francisco Goya said and painted, the sleep of reason produces monsters. 
I really wish he was wrong. With that, let's go on to the next lesson. Resiliency with some rigidity must be baked into everything. Now, the ability to quickly recover and adapt to a disaster is a key thing in a cyber event. Having a contingency plan that works as a playbook during any type of crisis is key to surviving said crisis, whether it's a ransomware event or a tornado or a hurricane as we just saw in Florida. And if you're in Florida, I hope you're okay. An organization has to quickly assess the situation, communicate with key stakeholders, execute co- uh, coordinated recovery operations, perform an impact analysis, and try and plan for improvements once the dust has settled. The rigidity in this situation is adhering to the policies, the procedures, and principles that everybody has agreed to ahead of time. In this manner, everybody does their job during a crisis, and improvement will come upon review in the aftermath of that when you have a chance to breathe and things have settled down. Nations can be no different. Disasters can strike, but the institutions must hold the line if the country is going to survive. Living in a democracy is adhering to the principles and laws of the land. When improvement is needed, it is vocalized, debated in good faith, and voted upon. However, most importantly, it's voted upon peacefully. Change may come slowly, but it does come, and usually for the greater good, when all parties adhere to the system. If the past few years have taught us anything, it's that societal resiliency is being tested and stretched. Now, in the book, How Democracies Die, authors Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt offer multiple examples of how resiliency, how the resiliency of unwritten rules that guide the American government have been tested or even broken. And I highly recommend everybody, if you are listening to this, to go read that book, How Democracies Die. You can get it on Kindle, audiobook, whatever it is. It is such, such a powerful read. Highly recommend it. Now, one of those rules is mutual toleration. And mutual toleration is the concept that both political parties and their followers understand and respect the other side. Both sides accept that they will have an equal shot at winning elections and shaping the future of the nation. However, without the rigidity of this unwritten rule, trust breaks down And so does the resiliency that people have enjoyed knowing everybody has the same chance of success. When we literally have a riot of people that want to overturn a rule or excuse me, overturn a vote because they did not like the results, that is a complete breakdown of mutual toleration. And polls show that once again, an unhealthy percentage of people see the other side as deeply immoral, not just simply wrong. And that is a huge problem. I've also seen as we've researched extremism, you know, calls for one side to murder the other side. The other side is evil. You know, there are conspiracy theories deeply, you know, based in extremist religious ideology that says Satan is controlling, you know, one side or the other. That's the QAnon stuff. It's absolutely nuts. This assumption that we are all in this together and working for the greater good, even when we disagree on what is is sadly becoming a thing of the past. Now, without restoring this trust, the United States can never recover and come back as a nation. I also see polls that say, oh, I would not want my son and daughter to marry somebody from the other political aisle. These are huge problems that we have in society that need to be addressed. They need to be focused on. We cannot let these things go. And with that, we come to the final lesson. Complacency 
will doom us all. Now, complacency is one of the biggest challenges security professionals face. New and innovative technologies, designs, strategies, and approaches are constantly being developed and adopted by those organizations that recognize they need to keep up with defense if they're going to be successful in protecting their intellectual property, revenue, people, and more. These are the organizations that are much less susceptible to events like ransomware, the organizations that keep doing the same thing over and over and over, whether it's renewing that antiquated firewall under the assumption it's just as good as a new solution, or not understanding the ever-changing threat landscape and then adjusting defenses accordingly, are the ones we see on the news when all of our credit cards and passwords were compromised and put on to sale for the dark web. I have this problem constantly as I'm walking in and people are like, oh, I've been using the same product for the last 10 years. It's worked fine. But yes, you're being outclassed and you've been outclassed for the last three to five years. You are behind. This is basically now a waiting game for when you're going to get hacked. Now, if the rise in the last decade or so of domestic violent extremism around the world should have taught governments anything at all, it's that those that threaten stable society take their time to assess the flaws in the law that can be exploited, the gap in traditional security that allows things like bombings, and the ability to leverage new technologies to try and gain popular support for their antithetical ideologies. The rise of social media and the free and open communication platforms that connect billions of people has been a disaster for the stability of nations around the globe. There is no doubt that the Facebooks of the world have turned everything up to 11 and that includes the degradation and the anger and the hyperbole and the violent extremism rhetoric it's everywhere it is such a huge problem every conspiracy theory from flat earth which is pretty innocuous to jfk jr is alive and well which is part of QAnon, is running rampant across the facebooks and the youtubes of the world with little to no checks Artificial intelligence is not the same as a human reviewing a controversial post for nuance, and with billions of posts happening literally daily, it is impossible to police. Facebook tried and failed and appears to have given up as their CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, is now focused on depressing us in virtual reality with the metaverse. Facebook is even spinning down vital research tools that the world was using to track disinformation and extremism which puts stable countries in an even more precarious position, meaning as the journalists and the researchers of the world were using these Facebook tools to see just how crazy it was getting out there on Facebook, Facebook is basically pulling the plug on these, spinning them down. They have claimed, oh, we're going to basically bring up something else that will be more robust, but nobody has seen anything. Their staff that monitors or, or watches elections has been cut drastically. Facebook has been losing a ton of money. They're no longer in the top 10. Mark Zuckerberg is no longer in the top 10 of uh, wealthiest people either, um, you know, as he's been focusing on metaverse and just basically taking the hits. I honestly think if Facebook went away, it would be a really good thing. But we have all of these fringe social media sites where we see basically the planning of extremists to do violent things all over the globe. It's a huge problem. If the fascists of the 1920s and 1930s taught us anything, it's that a motivated and violent few can topple governments and the general population isn't educated or motivated enough to stop it from happening. If the current stable democracies are to survive this current onslaught, the lessons here that I just laid out need to be at the forefront of public consciousness. If we are asleep at the wheel, the monsters really will be legion. It's time to get moving. 
And if you want more information on this, basically what I've talked about, if this is important to you as it is important to me, you can go and read the article that I pretty much just wrote. Well, I did. I wrote the whole thing and I pretty much just quoted myself through most of this. You can go read that at smirconish.com. That's S-M-E-R-C-O-N-I-S-H.com, smirconish.com. And read this. I think this is beyond important. I don't ask you to share it uh, unless you want to. I think it needs to be shared. But this is something that we have to look at. We are standing on the precipice. It feels that way as we are seeing people that are no longer adhering or wanting to adhere to constitutional norms, basically wanting to do their own things, wanting to basically circumvent the legal frameworks we have in place to get their way. This is a huge problem. And I'm not getting preachy here. This is not some kind of call to action beyond those government leaders that are listening to this and understand and see these threats coming. This is a huge problem. And with that, I will shut up now because I'm not trying to get preachy, but this is so unbelievably important. And so that was your deep dive of the week. And thank you so much for tuning in this week. It was another fun show. And I think we covered a lot of really good stuff. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. It was a really good time. And I hope you keep tuning in. Thank you very much for listening to the Deep Dive Radio Show here with Nick Espinoza. And if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, absolutely anything, once again, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. And you can always send an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. Don't be shy. I love the feedback. We've been having a great time with the show. And as always, stay safe and stay online, everyone. Thanks for listening.